I love this one line in this paper too. They sneak it in here. They say, economic history is littered with attempts at private money that failed, leading to losses for investors and the real economy. Now, if you look at a IMF study, 1970 to 2007, so very much in the central bank era of money, uh, there has been currency crises in 208 countries and bank crises in 124 countries, national debt crises in 63 countries over that 30-year period. Every single one of them was issued by central banks, 208 countries with currency crises. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinion of Arcos Global Advisors or its advisors. The mention of different asset types or securities do not constitute a recommendation for our clients. If you have any questions about the content of this podcast, please contact your advisor. In this episode of Navigating Bitcoin's Noise, I'm joined by Sam Callahan, who is an analyst at Swan Bitcoin. In our conversation, we discussed the Bank for International Settlements' recent paper, The Future Monetary System. Sam shares his deep central banking knowledge as we dive deeper into their views on central bank digital coins, digital money, and the role they believe central banks should play in the build-out of the crypto ecosystem. The paper contends that crypto markets are inadequate and unsafe because Bitcoin and crypto is not managed at the central bank level. Sam and I offer counters to these points, while also acknowledging that in the era of central banking, we've witnessed 208 currency crises. If you're looking to better understand Bitcoin's past and its future potential as an economic network, then join us and listen in. All right. Thanks, everybody, for joining today. I have with me Sam Callahan uh, with Swan Bitcoin. He's a research analyst there. And um, Sam, over the last year or so, has done a couple of podcasts, uh, some articles and, and different stuff related to central banks, uh, Bank for International Settlements, the IMF, and all those wonderful uh, Fed figures that are kind of driving the ship these days. Uh, so wanted to have Sam on and talk about the recent paper uh, that the BIS released and kind of what that means and, and what this future of money that, that they have identified looks like. So Sam, maybe you can tell just a brief background. I know you're on some other shows, so you don't have to go too deep and then we'll, we'll get into it. Yeah. Thanks, Kane. Thanks for having me. It's uh, uh so yeah, so I'm a, I'm a Bitcoin analyst and uh, being a Bitcoin analyst nowadays, you know, I have to study uh, the traditional financial system and how we got here to really understand Bitcoin uh, better and so I study central banks because I feel like central banks are, you know, the original purpose of Bitcoin was to take power away from them and these uh, large intermediaries. And um, I just think that these are the, the actors that are the true threats of freedom. And uh, they, they don't like Bitcoin and they're trying to create another system. And that's why I spend a lot of time studying them. Um, and yeah, so happy to be here. Happy to talk about this. This, uh, this recent biz paper, I think, is very blatant in, in they are designing a future monetary system. It's titled the future monetary system. And uh, unfortunately, I don't think it's talked about enough in mainstream media or from traditional financial analysts. So here we are uh, calling out the biz on this paper. So happy to be here. Yeah. And, and thanks for joining. I think that's perfect. I mean, I think the most fitting uh, representation of this, we talked about it a little bit before, um, had been hot on recently. And I think he did something about, it was a podcast on narratives and just semantic hijacking. So um, what really stuck out to me in this paper was not that 
they're planning this future of money, it just looks exactly like what the Bitcoin network looks like and what it's in, intended to do. And uh, in, in the one hand, they would say you can't do this with money, but if you do this with money, it's wording the, the exact same way, but I have a central bank, then it's okay. So yeah, you hosted a space as maybe you can go through some of the stuff you guys covered and, and your thought, your general thoughts on. Yeah, like, you know, the first thing I always like to say is that um, it's it's almost like they <laughs> we should thank them for, you know, letting us in on their plans for the world. It's like these unelected people are designing the future monetary system with zero accountability or oversight. And it's above sovereign nation and, and their governments. And, um, you know, from the get go, I think the actual existence of this paper is wrong. And I don't think that they have the authority or the power um, to implement their own thoughts and designs for billions of people around the world without any input, any accountability, any oversight from governments. And um, like, who are these people? I didn't vote for them. And yet they are designing the future monetary system for everybody. And um, so I just think that that's first, it's an important point to make is that this is wrong from the get-go and and i i think it's um it's if there is some kind of global monetary system it's either going to be something like bitcoin that you know comes up from the free market and from the grassroots and adopted by people just based on its properties or there needs to be a ton more conversations and public conversations with governments um who are elected by the people that they you know govern uh, to have input in this, because quite frankly, these are all, you know, discussions happening behind closed doors with unelected central bankers. And that just really uh, grinds my gears. That's a good point. It's a good place to start, because if you go back and, and I know you've got uh, a good bit of historical knowledge on this front, but if you go back to World War Two and even into the setup of the Fed in 1913 and then World War One and we won World War II in the U.S. basically through monetary means of of cutting off Germany from uh, or, or indebting them and then cutting them off from the monetary system. You see in Russia get cut off today. They're partnering with other countries that have financial means that can move money around. You have this tool in the Bitcoin network, other cryptocurrencies within the ecosystem that can transmit value. So you have options around kind of the dollar and, and the challenges that have come to be in the last five years. Um but the, the Bank for International Settlements and the IMF and the World Bank were set up in 44 to 50, like in that general time. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about who, how that happened just briefly, and then a little bit more on the unelected officials that now kind of call the shots. Yeah, well, uh, you know, not to get too deep into the history, but, you know, the Bank of International Settlements was basically created, uh, it's the oldest one of those large international financial institutions. It was created in 1930, and it was really created to be a neutral bank to help um, facilitate Germany's war reparations coming out of World War I. Um, now, if you know about the 1930s, Hitler basically reneged on all his debts from the, from the war, World War I and thought it was a stain on, on Hitler, on Germany, I mean, sorry. Um, and so they took him off. They said, we're not paying the war reparations anymore. And then suddenly the Bank of International Settlements, you know, why they were created, their total existence was just shattered in like four years after they were made. Uh, so they kind of like pivoted to be this, uh, you know, large 
uh, intermediary to move uh, large capital across borders. And they did that with gold. Um, and that's really how they survived up until 1944. And then they've kind of uh, morphed into different things over the years. And now they're kind of like a central bank for central banks where they just provide banking services for these central banks. Um, they are a event planner, essentially. So they have a lot of uh, committees and monthly meetings with different members of high finance and central bankers where they can discuss things behind closed doors outside of the purview of politicians or reporters or the media. And uh, they're also uh, basically a huge uh, database. So they collect they have more access to financial data than anybody. And they have a view over the international flows of finance. And so they're a huge research hub. And so that's why a lot of these uh, plans around central bank digital currencies, as well as the future design of the monetary system is coming out of the Bank of International Settlements, specifically their innovation hub. And so uh, they're kind of in the background and people don't talk about them, but they still wield a tremendous amount of power. And uh, they're basically consists of members of high finance. So it could be finance ministers, uh, central bankers. Um, so like, for instance, Christine Lagarde uh, from the ECB is, is, is on the, uh, the board of the, the biz right now. And um, the managing director is Augustine Carstens, who's a former central banker as well. And so that's kind of like the uh, quick and dirty of the yeah. Bank of International Settlements. Yeah. yeah that, that's good. I mean, I think the one thing that stuck out to me, we hear a lot um, for decades, but specifically in the last decade and post, post 2008, uh, the Fed calls the shots. But when you go down mm -hmm. this rabbit hole, kind of aware of these things, but never really dug too deep. Um, when you really look at it and the importance of this paper is, I don't really believe anymore that the Fed calls the shots. And um, these unelected members, finance ministers and whatnot, they're, they're all post kind of 1960s into the 70s jockeying. How do we keep this thing together? How do we make this thing work in a good way? But it was all in, in their committees that they decided that weren't official. And, you know, if we devalue, you have to let your, your currency run. Uh, if we run a deficit, you have to run a surplus. And then that all kind of broke down. And out of that came this power where the BIS and IMF appear to be when you look at these papers calling the shot so we have bitcoin come along to kind of fix the system you have other cryptocurrencies that act as technology around movement of money much like we have credit cards that uh, you know attach to the traditional bank networks and then boom they release this paper that says here's what the future money is going to look like and i read it and i'm like man you almost reworded the bitcoin white paper in so many different ways but said it's going to be great because we're going to have a CBDC. Yeah, it's, it's going to be better because we're still at the center of it. Yeah, that's basically, uh, it, it does, it hijacks the, the terminology. So um, you hear this a lot with other altcoin projects. I, I honestly didn't expect to, this to come from the Bank of International Settlements, but they, they basically say, throw out words like decentralized, right? And mm -hmm. even though obviously they're central, central bank, they're extremely centralized and so is the system, but they're basically just throwing out these buzzwords, just like these altcoin projects. And yeah, uh, it's, that's, yeah. that's, that's what like struck me not to cut you off there, but I was like, wait yeah. a second. It reads like a 2017 ICO white paper, except maybe yeah. even it's even more boring than their <laughs> than those <laughs> and doesn't make like sense at all. So there's, full of contradictions. I'm sure we'll get into it. So a big thing in their paper, and this is a big thing for 
for Bitcoin, right, is not having to trust third parties. Um, you know, the system kind of takes care of that in a way that, you know, ultimately there's trust in different layers, but but you don't have to go request permission to do something with your money. And and their big sticking point is that, you know, a monetary system requires trust. And and that trust comes from a central bank. And they're there to to promote competition and give full play to the ingenuity and creativity of the private sector and servicing customers. That's what that's what they wrote. But when you look at how the system functions today, most of those things are not like banks aren't creative. They're not promoting competition, which is leading to inequalities and, and you know, people and individuals and countries suffering on the back of other larger countries. So they're not really servicing their customers. And in comes Bitcoin and kind of does start to do those things. And so we spend a decade you know, poo-pooing on it and saying, well, it can never make it because it's not money, it can't be money because we didn't issue it. But it's solving a lot of the problems or could. And they say no. And now they release a paper that says we're going to do exactly the same thing. The Bank of International Settlements, they're all about cooperation and improving the efficiency of, you know, capital movements and, and the global financial system, as well as, you know, enhancing stability. That's like the three things, cooperation, uh, efficiency and stability. That's what their mission mm -hmm. statement's all about. And they have struggled to fix the cross-border payment system. If you read their papers for you know the last decade, it's always like they're still expensive. Even though we have all this technology, we still can't send cross-border payments. They're expensive. Um, and then in comes Bitcoin and Lightning, and it really disrupts them, right? Because if you think of the Bank of International Settlements, they are probably the largest intermediary of all the mm -hmm. intermediaries. They're kind of like in this stratosphere above everything else doing the really large capital movements. And, you know, lightning and you can send it basically for free and almost instantly. And um, this is the innovation that they've been waiting for. But, you know, the, the correspondent banking system used for cross-border payments that the business involved with it's just built up these huge wall gardens and it's been very difficult for new entrants to come in and innovate because it's just extremely expensive. And so it's been a really long time coming, really since the 70s, where we finally have this new system that the free market provided, right? It's This is just innovation, a disruptive technology. And um, I think the biz is just starting to wrap their heads around this about the implications uh, for the for the system, but also for themselves, and and I think uh, they're trying to push in their own solution now to kind of protect their own, uh, you know, <laughs> business essentially. And that that's what's interesting because some of the points about um, you know the current system is expensive, the current system is clunky because it takes four days, two days, you know, and just the world moves faster, and and you you see new monies get introduced, in my opinion, throughout time based on how fast society moves and how fast settlements need, and, and it just keeps speeding up. Um, but they say that on the one hand, we can't use Bitcoin or, or these uh, permissioned distributed ledgers as they refer to a lot, um, because if it's just free and in the wild, then it would be, it wouldn't be great because it wouldn't be scalable. And, and it wouldn't be great because you'd have this fragmentation of the market. But then they come back and say, well, if we made it a multi, you know, they call it multi-CBD arrangement. So effectively, it sounds like you'll have blocks of countries that will have yeah. their own cryptocurrency. 
you'll still have that fragmentation, but it's going to be cheaper now because we're running it. And it sounds to me like they're saying we can't, it, it will still be expensive if it's Bitcoin, but if we maintain the power, somehow it will magically be cheaper. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, this fragmentation that they, they talk about, um, they're really, if, if you look at their charts and everything, they're talking about how the fact that there's new cryptocurrencies and they're taking market share and that there's no moat uh, between these L1s, right? Mm-hmm. But then they show a chart and they just conveniently leave off the number one L1, Bitcoin. <laughs> right. And of course, Bitcoin has been the most liquid and the highest market cap uh, for every year in its existence. And so there's not much fragmentation for you know, when you include Bitcoin, because it's maintained its position as, you know, the dominant digital money. Um, But then they kind of use that argument. They just basically a lot of their arguments against the crypto industry is with everything outside of Bitcoin. uh, Mm -hmm. If you read the paper, but they're, you know, they're conflating the two and putting all the blame on Bitcoin for like the failure of Terra Luna, for instance, they talk about that. They talk about the fragmentation of the you know, Ethereum killers and how they're centralized. And even though they say they're decentralized, but of course, none of this, uh, you know, matters to Bitcoin, but, you know, they don't really mention that in here. And then I'd like to just take a step back and say, you know, they say trust in the monetary system is ultimately grounded in trust in the central bank and how they need to be involved, right? Because that's how we have a stable financial system. And to me, that's, it's like, they haven't really come, um, they haven't really realized that their credibility has never been lower in the world, that nobody right. trusts them, right? And they're, they're basically just saying that people, like, well, people trust central banks. They even say, like, um, you know, we, we can handle all the data because we're, we're a public institution. We're not private. So you can trust us with the data. We won't use it badly. And nobody well, you can, trusts you these can guys. Trust- you can trust us with the data, you know, over the last 110 years, we've only caused the two or three greatest crisis known to man, but you can trust exactly. us. Exactly. And like their credibility is just so low, but you can tell that they still just think that they are the smartest. There's a lot of hubris written in here about how great central banks are without, they should probably like look out the window or read something outside of their echo chambers because, you know, people, their trust has just never been lower. And trust in institutions have been degrading and, and central banks are a huge part of that. And so I think people are ready for a monetary system uh, not grounded in the trust of central banks because um, there's been breaches of those trusts. And that's a you know quote from Satoshi, yeah. uh, you, know, you know what I mean? So um, I just thought that was like hilarious. It just shows a very big disconnect between uh, you know, reality between their situation uh, in, in society today. And that's the... You know, I've harped on it a couple of times, but that's the part that really stood out to me is that if a lot of people read this and, you know, most people psychologically are just going to go with whatever kind of the mainstream thing is, because it's easier to go with the flow than against the flow. Uh, but we're at one of those weird periods where, you know, it really is important to step back and and critically think through what's happening and what your choices are and the game theory of all the different things that are happening in the world. And so my fear is that they kind of run this psyops and then they'll start marketing on commercials, like get the new CBDC. It's going to be better than your dollars or, you know, whatever your local currency, and it's going to be more connected and whatever. And then 
all of a sudden we get down the road in this, this 10, 20 years later. And, you know, not only do they know what you're looking at online and kind of, so they can understand when to hit you with ads, but then they know like where your money's going how it's being spent, what it's being spent on, when you can pull it back, when you push it to you and you get down to the, the downsides of, you know, blockchain money or, or even, you know, to an extent you, in fairness, you can do that with Bitcoin. You see where the flows are going. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it's not anonymous. So the, the fact that, and I'm not, you know, conspiracy theory, anon, like all that stuff, but all of a sudden our entire livelihoods are peered on. And, uh, you know, Facebook taught us the reason why you really don't want that deep of peering into everything that you're doing. Yeah. And like, you just really don't want, um, it's the ability to do it, right? Like you can say, I'm not going to use that badly. You know, maybe they initially roll out the CBDC and they act benevolent and they don't, uh, you know, abuse their power that they have. But the fact that they even have that power is extremely concerning. And it doesn't mean the next regime of central bankers, when the world gets a little bit more volatile and crazy, won't resort to, you know, utter censorship and, you know, using monetary policy to uh, influence social policy and vice versa. And, and all this power that they have basically just cut off somebody from, from the system with the click of a button. Um, it's concerning. And you also, the surveillance that you mentioned, it's, you know, that's what's happening in, in uh, digital one in China. Um, it's basically just a surveillance uh, token and, you know, show me what you buy and, and you can, you can tell a ton by somebody about their life and about their life choices, who they are as a person, who they interact with, uh, just by looking at their financial data. Um, and so it, it's concerning and it's, it's why like um, I always work, I work in Bitcoin now because I see it as the, you know, antithesis to this future, you know, an alternative to, to this really kind of dystopian CBDC monetary system that the biz is promoting in this paper. And, and, you know, in fairness, yes. And in traffic congested times, Bitcoin is not cheap. It's not cheap to use. Um, for, in a lot of cases, if you're in a Western world, there's five or six or seven, maybe even 10 different ways that are better to pay somebody. But, you know, with what's going on with lightning and what's going on with the other layer ones and, and the integration, the interoperability, we're kind of rebuilding this dollarized network. So if you look at Bitcoin like a secure, you know, safety asset like gold was, and then you have lightning that kind of functions like dollars because it allows that medium of exchange piece. And, you know, Bitcoin still needs to make the jump to unit of account because right now, like everything else, it's just a dollar derivative. Because when I say, what price is Bitcoin? You quote me in dollars. You don't quote me in Satoshis. You don't quote me in some other unit. So there, but that's what comes over five or 10 years. Um, and then the store value. Yeah, sure. You're down 60, 70% in the last six, seven months, but it's still over a little over four years ago. You you've stored value in it. Whereas if you go look yeah, in purchasing power because, has gone yeah, up. Yeah. It's up. Uh, or if you go look at, at dollars, it's down any other fiat is down. And so, the truth in fairness, no money that man has ever created, not even Bitcoin at this point, does all three of those functions very well. We are in a period where communication technology, monetary technology, the way people move around, that possibly can be solved. And maybe we do get something that works on all three. 
yeah, you know, I, I think that thing is Bitcoin. I think you're right today. No, but it is uh, continually being improved upon and upgraded because it's software. Mm-hmm. And so it can, it can get better over time. And in terms of the, the you know, down 60% or whatever, you know, at least the overall supply hasn't been diluted. Whereas right. all these other fiat currencies are being debased at an increasingly rapid rate and unpredictable rate. Mm-hmm. And you just don't know. And, and the thing about it is once those fiat currencies are diluted uh, through money printing, that purchasing power never comes back, period. You know, Bitcoin, mm-hmm. since it's not diluted, it's impossible it has the ability to go back up in value. <laughs> the purchasing yeah. power can go back up with, with the, you know, the people in uh, Argentina, Turkey. I mean, really you look anywhere around the world, inflation is just, and, and currency debasement are both just going up into the right. Yeah. And that is just never coming back for those people, the, the people saving in those currencies. And so it's an important point to make, I think, because uh, you know, Bitcoin will improve over time. And its purchasing power will fluctuate, but it'll also fluctuate to the upside, which is what we've seen over longer timeframes. Yeah. And and back a little bit earlier, you talked about the fragmentation and um, how they point that out as a flaw. But if if they say on the one hand that they're for competition, well, what better creates competition than fragmentation? Because users in the market, you know, it would be a little bit annoying like today. Well, which app should I text you on? Should I send you an email? Should I call you? Maybe we could Zoom. It kind of gets annoying. You have too many options. So fragmentation can create hurdles. But once you get past the development stage and that then the network effect takes hold and people decide, okay, these are the few, you know, tokens, coins, whatever, that do the job well for these different things, or maybe you have one, whatever it may be. It, it keeps that competitive spirit going that we just don't have. Um, Bank of America, JP Morgan, City, Goldman, those guys dominate. Um, well, they, like they, I mean, this is what happens when you, you, you have monopolies. And I would call right. what the IMF has and the biz, I've, I would say they've had monopolies for multiple, multiple decades. But, you know, yeah. in the business case, it's a monopoly on large, you know, transnational capital movements and being an intermediary. And, and so what happens is there's no, there's no competition. And then there's eventually just rot, right? There's, there's rot of uh, the efficiencies and, and nothing ever improves. And uh, internally at the biz, like, it seems like nobody even knows what they do. It seems like this really, really large bureaucratic organization um, where you know, since they have no competition, nobody's forced them to be better. And that's yeah. why we haven't seen any any really improvements since the 70s with this mm-hmm. system. The 70s, that's that's crazy with the amount of technological innovation we've had over that time period. And um, it's about time it's happened. And, and I, I think Bitcoin is that thing. I do think it's interesting in that they talk about the lack of scalability and the fragmentation and the congestion of fees. But again, they they show a graph of Ethereum. And Ethereum has some scalability issues, but that's not Bitcoin. And, and it's well, they're not trying to be money. That's the thing. That's the everybody battles right. Bitcoin or Ethereum, but Ethereum is trying to be technology that moves money, moves value. Bitcoin is trying to be money. There's yeah, two completely you, different things. 